All right. You made your way there. Let's pause and pray. Father God, we've reached a point here this morning where we are uh, hoping, desiring, expecting to hear from you. We all are uh, awaiting like your sheep to be fed. And so, Lord, we just ask that graciously and kindly and even mercifully you would uh, bestow upon us good food, uh, good direction, life according to your word. Lord, your people have gathered in this place because you are worthy of worship. You are worthy of devoted focus and lifelong uh, communion and eternal praise. And we recognize that in this moment. We recognize that you alone, O oh Lord, have the words of life. And so we say with Peter, to who else would we turn? There's nowhere else to go. And we are grateful for that. You have made us to know the way and that you continue to reveal and light that path by your word. And so, Lord, we bring you praise for the fact that these Bibles are open and they are from you. So, Lord, forgive us for how we have failed you in word and thought and deed. Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness and search us that we may see any unclean way within us and grant us repentance, that we would follow after you more than our own flesh. So, Lord, you rule over all. And this is your hour, and we are your people to do with as you please for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Last week we began a, a two-part sermon here covering verses 12 through 14 of 1 Thessalonians 5, and I entitled it Seeking Their Good because we began with uh, verses 12 and 13 coming to understand through Paul's instruction what it meant to seek the good of those who lead or uh, rule over us in spiritual matters to give an account for our souls someday, what it means to relate to them in a way that is ordered, in a way that glorifies God, in a way that blesses not only them, but our own spiritual health. And so Paul made sure to mention that, and then he directs the focus to all of us, and in fact to everyone. How do we seek the good of everyone? And I'll, and I'll have you know that Paul is doing this after the discourse of the first half of this chapter, because the Thessalonian church is distracted. And I wonder if we can relate. And I would think that we certainly can. They were distracted by false teachers who said, Jesus already came, or he's over there, or whatever the case was. They were worried. They, you can almost get a sense of their anxiousness about the fact that they don't know what is going to happen with those that have, have died before the resurrection, or those who have died after the resurrection. And so they're anxiously stirred up by these people. And Paul brings in good doctrine to calm them and encourage them and strengthen them so that now he can direct their focus, which is to be relational. 
As the coming of the Lord is mentioned in every single chapter of this letter, this book, he is, he is making sure they understand what it is, how it is, and that they don't know when it is, but that it is. Find comfort there, settled matter. Now, what do you want to be found doing? And I think his, his whole drive in this book is modeled in how he relates to them and loves them and speaks to them, but also modeled in how he commands them, urges them, exhorts them, admonishes them, and he, he points them uh, in a relational way in the midst of distraction to seeking their good. So all of us are receiving the same instruction that they're receiving, and the instruction is outward. It is first to Christ and to the settled fact that he won our reconciliation with God. He paid for our sins. Therefore, his coming again is, is for us. That's settled. Look to him, worship him, follow him, and do good to everyone, he begins to say. In a distracted age, which could be any age in the world, any decade, any century, the world is, is drawn to a certain thing, event, happening, regime, war, whatever it is. And usually you can see some sort of demonic influence in that thing that the world is distracted to. That the devil would seek to take that, to take distraction away from the glory of God and onto something temporal or whatever it is. And we know from 2 Corinthians 4 that he's in the business of doing that, using everything he can to blind the minds of especially unbelievers from seeing the glory of God. We even learn from the book of Revelation that he's going to seek to draw away even the elect from the glory of God. He's going to do that by distraction. Oh, there's some uh, catastrophe or, or something over here, and it would be good for you to focus on that so you can solve that, right? Well, I'm not discounting that we need to, to be faithful, to live in a gospel way, to bring truth into the marketplace and, and into our local government and all that sort of thing. But is the focus on their good or on that thing? I think in whatever we do, even if we go into the midst of the chaos or the war or whatever, we should be relationally focused. We should be next to the guy in the army barrack or, or next to the nurse in the hospital, and we should be seeking their good in the fact the overall uh, greatest drive or endeavor for us in seeking their good is that they would see Jesus for who he is. That you would do that spiritual warfare by bringing the gospel to somebody as the, the, the desire for their ultimate good. Their ultimate good is Jesus. So we take the truth, we take the gospel, we take our hard work, we take uh, uh, truth and all of that, and we go into these things and we seek the good of the people in the midst of them. And you transform the world and people from the inside out. In 
And this is especially true within the church. We have a responsibility one to another to keep ourselves from being distracted and to keep each other pointing Godward or to grow in our sanctification. If we already learned that the express will of God is our sanctification, then you and I, as lovers of our brothers and sisters, as caretakers of their souls, should be those that are pointing them that way. After all, in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, Paul says two times, encourage one another with these words. Don't stir each other up to uh, the latest political talking point, but stir each other up to good works. Stir each other up to worship. Stir each other up to the glory of God in your midst, which will be so countercultural to what's going on out there that they will see that you have a different focus in life and it's not caught up in what the mainstream media says it should be caught up in. It's caught up in this Jesus who died uh, some 2,000 years ago. Why? Why are you so focused on that? And that's one thing our new Sunday school class is doing. It's looking at these Puritans, and they could be upset about all these different monarch changes and all the, all the conflict with the Church of England and all that stuff, but they're focused on Christ at all times, in all things, all for the glory of God. And so we are about doing this. And Paul's going to tell us in very specific ways how we do this. And so that's what we get into today. So he says in verse 14, We urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. Well, we saw this word admonish last week in verse 12, and we already found out that uh, those that are uh, in the business of admonishing us all the time are those who are over us or leading us in spiritual things. But then he is always directing the attention at the whole of the church, and he's reminding them, all of us, again, that you also be about the business of admonishing one another. Admonishing means to instruct, warn, counsel the disorderly and the undisciplined. That's literally what admonish the idol means. In Acts 20, 31, Luke records this, Therefore be alert, remembering that for three years, Paul's saying, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Admonishing is not taking somebody by the hand like a child and smacking them on the hand for grabbing something they shouldn't or something like that. This is, this is instructing, counseling. And we're going to see as he begins to pour through these three uh, sections or these three circumstances in which we are to, to love or seek the good of our brother and sister, we're going to see that it is out of love that this happens. That it is for the good, it is for the holiness of the church, for the holiness of that particular life, so that there may be fruit and so that there may be life in that. And so that people are changed by the witness that's displayed in that holy life. 1 Corinthians 4.14, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, 
but to admonish you as my beloved children. Do you see the heart there in admonishment? It's not to say, hey, you need to get off your rear and get to this study or this meeting, or you need to put away that activity. It is for the holiness and the love of your brother and sister. And we've already found out that that's the reason why Paul's writing this letter in the first place. Because he loves these people. He desires to see them and know about their faith so much, right, that he gave up one of his children in the faith to go on a dangerous journey to go check on them. That's how much he's concerned about them. Are we that concerned about each other? The idol here are those that are probably not submitted to authority, which especially would be the word of God. They're out of order. They're apathetic. They're not living up to their responsibility. They're what we would call today consumer Christians. They come, they see if you can give them any good thing or any answer to whatever struggle they're dealing with, and then they leave. They don't take part and invest their lives in this vehicle which is used to make the gospel visible to the world. What can you give me? Oh, I don't like that aspect of worship. I'm going to go check out the next church. Or they're just undisciplined. They don't care about holiness. They know it's a good thing to come to church on Sunday for some reason, so they come. But the rest of their life is given over to whatever the world would give their lives over to. It's not submitted to daily seeking the Lord. It's not submitted to daily serving the Lord. It's not submitted to daily repenting in the Lord and to the Lord. It's not submitted to their whole life being structured and ordered towards the glory of God. And we're all guilty of this. It's not just some people. Some of us fall into idleness all the time. Some of us once in a while. But it happens. And he's telling the people here, look, don't kick them out. Don't curse them out. But, but counsel them. Warn them where you see them losing sight of the gospel. Instruct them that they, they need to constantly hear this word. They need to constantly be under the teaching. They need to constantly be meditating on the scriptures. They need to constantly be praying uh, with their brothers and sisters and confessing their sins to one another and making known their needs and their struggles. You know what happens to an undisciplined Christian? They easily get separated from the flock not paying attention to where the flock's going, being very nonchalant about it, and are very then easily picked off by wolves. Wolves could be in sheep's clothing. They could be false teachers that come alongside, and an undisciplined sheep not paying attention to the flock or the direction of the shepherd, and that, that wolf in sheep's clothing says, hey, what? let's go over here. Oh, oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, I'll go follow you. I'll go with you. And soon enough... They're in some awful, destructive teaching. Wow. 
giving their life away to that which is not of God. I think that's the main thing we want to take away from that. We want to give our lives to the things that are of God. These people are out of step in the goal of knowing God and making disciples. I would say those are the two most important aspects of the Christian life. Knowing God and making disciples. Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1 is that they would grow in the knowledge of God. In Colossians 1.28, here's another goal. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And you grow in your maturity in Christ by growing to know Christ. And the more you know of Christ, the better you can follow him. The closer you can follow him, the more you know where he is leading as you live your life. Second, making disciples. Ephesians 4 tells us that uh, these people who we talked about last week, these teachers and overseers and the apostles who recorded these words of the Lord and and presented them to us today, uh, those people were giving to equip us for the work of ministry. And the work of ministry is serving the gospel to people in need and then making sure to make learners out of them who receive those things. To say, hey, you want to go read John with me? Hey, you want to read Romans with me? And we'll figure it out together. Matthew 28, right? That's the great command from Jesus before he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Make disciples. He said to do that. And the great confidence we have in that, if he's saying, to make learners. That means he's going to save people that desire to become learners. And we got to be ready for them. So if you're not about those things, or if you're out of step with those things, or if you don't care about those things, I would label you an idle person, an idle Christian. Secondly, he says, encourage the faint-hearted. Or you could rephrase that, encourage the discouraged. Isaiah 35, verse 3 through 4, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the meeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Isaiah 40, verse 1 through 2, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And we'll get into Isaiah 40 some more in a minute. Isaiah 40, 11. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Why did I just read those from Isaiah? Because encouraging the discouraging is done by proclaiming to them what the Lord has said. That's exactly what Paul is asking the Thessalonians to do in this letter. Take the promises of God and encourage the people. Because we're going to get faint-hearted. We're going to get discouraged. And if the Lord should continue to tarry, and, and if we're not raptured before we turn 
80 or 90, we're going to get discouraged. Even the greatest men and women throughout the history of Christianity have wrote about and experienced great moments of discouragement. I remember uh, Charles Spurgeon after the great uh, Crystal Palace uh, uh, mayhem where somebody shouted fire and it caused everybody to just stampede through this great awesome auditorium and killed I think seven people in the midst of that and and Charles was so depressed after that he didn't know if he'd ever preach again and he said I couldn't even open my Bible so when you encounter a brother or sister in that sort of state how do you encourage them you take the word to them you take the word to them they don't need your advice they don't need your uh, your pithy wisdom like Job's friends. They need the word of God consistently because that's the only thing that can speak life into people is the word of God. Here's what Proverbs says about the discouraged. Proverbs 15, 13. A glad heart makes a cheerful face, but by sorrow of heart, the spirit is crushed. Proverbs 18, 14. A man's spirit will endure sickness, but a crushed spirit who can bear. In other words, you can, you can get better when you're sick, but man, how is it to be discouraged? What type of bandage or medicine is there for that? Will I be over it in a day, a week? Will I be over it in a month? Discouragement is quite the ailment for us. Discouragement is a great distraction for us. Discouragement presents us before a plethora of lies from the evil one. Discouragement tells us that God has left, that God doesn't care, that God won't make this work for good to those who are called according to his purpose. Discouragement is ugly, and discouragement happens. And so if you ever shortchange or discount how important it is to gather with your brothers and sisters, you remember that somebody is discouraged, and that somebody may directly encounter you by, by divine appointment, and you, by your diligence in the word, not being idle, you may have the word that will bring them from that. In Pilgrim's Progress, Christian is locked away at one point, and he's locked away essentially by discouragement. And he comes to find that the key that unlocks the cell are the promises of God. That's the only way we get out. It's the only way that we help free each other from discouragement. So be around your brothers and sisters and be full of the word of God. Here's some help for the discouraged. John 16, right from Jesus himself. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 
if we have peace with God in Jesus, if he has promised us the things he's promised us and spoken those things to us so that we have them recorded and we have them memorized and we have them as our constant day, daily hope, then what we experience in the world is promised tribulation and persecution and famine and nakedness and sword and all of that that Romans 8 lists. But he says, I overcame the world. Why does that matter? Because we're told time and time again, and as Jesus goes on to pray in John 17, he's praying that we would be in him like he is in the Father. So if Jesus has overcome the world, then we get to the end of Romans 8, and we see all those things which, which sought to separate us or bring us tribulation, and we see that those things begin to be used as, as metaphors and examples of how we become conquerors because we're in Jesus who conquered all those things. Going back to Isaiah 40, which is an amazing chapter as it comes full circle for a people who have been discouraged and been even under the wrath of God. And then there's this comfort that's pronounced at the beginning of Isaiah 40. And then when you get to Isaiah 40, 29 through 31, he gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I look to the hills, and where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. You may be in the midst of discouragement, and how we're going to practice this or put it uh, into application is we're going to instruct people to wait on the Lord. That if their hope and if all they're left with is the fact that God promises to rescue, even from the depths of despair, if God has a word in his word for them, to bring them out of that or to set them free from that bondage. They wait on him to do it and he will do it. He may use us to bring that as messengers, but he will do it. There's help for the discouraged. And I mentioned Romans 8, and so we got to look at it because every time somebody says something about Romans 8, you have to look at it because it's the magnum opus of Paul in his writings, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. <clears throat> we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. There's that Jesus saying, you will have tribulation. We are sheep counted to be slaughtered. We are those who are opposed by the world and the evil one. So just get comfortable with that. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When you're in the midst of discouragement, you may read that and you say, so, I mean, right now I feel separated. This is, this is the important part about discouragement that we have to share with our brothers and sisters. It doesn't matter to some extent how you feel in discouragement. 
It matters what you know. That's why denominations and religions that are built simply on the experience or the burning in the bosom or the the external uh, realities or whatever it is of their religion are, are lacking. We have to rely on what Paul prays that the Ephesians get in Ephesians 1. We have to rely on the knowledge of God to carry us through when everything seems to point in the opposite direction. And, and me, and my young life, if I didn't know what I know, I wouldn't be here. And a lot of you can say the same thing. And despite how I felt, it mattered more what I knew to be true. Therefore, I don't feel like that's true, but I know that's true. Therefore, I'm going with that. And we have to do that, especially in our discouragement. Next, he says... Help the weak. Help the weak. To help them in this context means to be devoted to them. I thought that was awesome when I looked that up. Devoted to them. To to take charge, to manage, to deal with the morally weak. There could be a connotation here of those who are actually sick and frail and weak, certainly we are instructed through Scripture to, to, to be with them, to help them, and to uh, obviously lay hands on them and pray for them. But what about the morally weak? What about those who are struggling with sin and who desire to overcome it and who struggle with sin and desire to overcome it so they're in this constant conflict within themselves? They have the Holy Spirit. They know the conviction. They haven't grown enough to to know the conquering of those sins and the power of the Holy Spirit over those things or the truths of Scripture which would help them overcome those things. They haven't learned to rely on their brothers and sisters yet uh, to overcome those things, uh, to be accountable to a group and to, to have somebody watching over their souls. They haven't learned that, so they're struggling in and out, in and out, in and out of this sin. They're, they're morally weak, and Paul says be devoted to them. If any of you in this room, which most of you have, raised children, then then take that love that you had for them and apply it to your brothers and sisters. What we tend to do, and we we do this rightly at home, we, we do exercise grace to an extent, and we do bear with our children because we think, well, we don't have any other choice. And we... We, we work through their, their struggles and their adolescence and their growing and all this sort of stuff. And even if, if they are to greatly sin and leave home, we still, as parents, are, are devoted to their good. Which is admonishing them and praying for them and, and standing for the truth. But, but when it comes to people outside of our immediate families, we don't do this that well. We just kick them out. They're just like, oh, you know, they can't get it right. I don't, I don't want anything to do with them. Uh, that's not the instruction of Scripture. Paul is 
urging. Be devoted to them. And guess what? As I mentioned, making disciples earlier, that's part of making disciples. <laughs> is, is bearing with that person who is struggling. And you're like, well, you know, um, I'm just tired of their struggle and they keep falling back into this and then they keep coming back. And, oh, I'm so sorry. I hate that I did that. You know what Jesus says about that situation? After he's asked, I think by Peter, who's like, hey, if my brother sins against me, how many times do I need to forgive him before I can be like, okay, done with you, moving on? Jesus says, Luke 17, 4, if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. You must forgive him. You know, an easy way to keep this at the front of your mind and your heart, um, think about how God bears with you. Think about your own sin on a daily basis, a weekly basis, ba basis and, and think about how God bears with you. Not only how he bears with you, but that he seeks your good. That he continues with you as you are immersed in this battle and he begins to grow you and equip you and not let you go and complete the work that he began in you. That this holy, sovereign, majestic God over all the universe and everything known and unknown is, is bearing with these futile, weak creatures in the midst of their sin struggle. He's there. Jesus is allowing his life to be lived in the 24-hour, seven-day-a-week presence of these sinners who don't get it. He, he is forgiving them constantly. And when you and I hear that, we think, gosh, that must be tiring. Uh, no. He loves completely. And in our minds, we could even say he loves extremely. And that would be what it means to love extremely. Now, granted, that other person needs to have that repentant heart. But as much as you and I can discern that and discern that they want the Lord and that they want to grow and they want to overcome these things, we must bear with them. In essence, be devoted to them. That requires great, steadfast love from the church. And guess, guess what it, kind of testimony that is to the world? It's a huge testimony to the world. That this is a safe place for them. That a lot of people don't darken our doors because they think they're not worthy. Well, welcome <laughs> to the unworthy family of God. That's us. And we're bearing with each other and we're overcoming sin and we're mortifying the flesh day by day by day. And if I didn't have this person and that person, then it wouldn't happen. So come in, find a seat, grab a brother and sister, uh, sit them next to you and tell them where you're struggling, what you need help with. And you and I have to be ready to hear it and ready to forgive it and ready to lead them in devoted 
Patience. Next point. Be patient with them all. If you go through all these circumstances of, of all these people we've been talking about, all the situations you may find yourself at some point in your life, especially here in the church, he, he caps off that sentence with, be patient with them all. Remain, here's literally what it means, remain even-tempered while enduring trying circumstances. Be a steadfastness in their life. Don't easily be moved by how they were shaken by their sin or someone else's sin, but be a constant reference point of encouragement from the Word of God. Admonish them, counsel them, instruct them, warn them, and encourage them in the Word. Forgive them. 1 Corinthians 13, this is what love is. Love is patient. Love is kind. Galatians 5.22, it is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience. Some of us don't come by that naturally. Some of us do. But either way, it doesn't matter. Because we're all called to patience. Patience. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, as Paul shifts from doctrine into application, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now here's part of that worthiness. With all humility and gentleness, with patience. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. <laughs> so Paul's saying that a manner worthy is characterized by these things, which are fruits of the Spirit, in bearing with one another because you hope to maintain the unity of the Spirit. And in maintaining the unity of the Spirit, you become the gospel on display who Christ, being the Prince of Peace and even the Prince of Patience with His people, bears with us, stays with us, promises to never leave us nor forsake us, and we tell people and how we display that to one another that this is the God we serve. And you're welcome to be a part of that love. You communicate that to the world when you are eager to maintain the unity within this body. Not only that, Paul says, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Or would Christ have the most whole body you've ever seen? Well, if we're going to be diligent in that, if we're going to be serious about that, then that was, would require that we admonish, that we encourage, that we help or be devoted to, and that we exercise patience with one another. When you have a church split, and I'm not talking about over major issues of doctrine, I'm talking about what, what one brother just shared with me this week. He read the, the minutes of, uh, of the church before 
the, the minutes of a meeting before he got there, and literally the last point in the meeting, and you've heard this time and time again, was the color of the carpet choice. And after that, the church split. And our, you know, your mouths are like open. But you see how this happens, right? You see that when we lose sight, when we become idle, when we've stopped loving each other uh, enough to warn each other or instruct each other, when we've stopped being able to bear with one another in patience, when we've uh, begun to discount who we are in Christ and what this body means and represents, oh, you can easily divide over that and a number of things. Easy. But if you look at this as a family that you are eternally tied to in Christ, then that strand cannot easily be broken. Because the power of Christ dwells in and among that to keep that unity together. So that you know that if you had to depend on yourself and your brother and sister to maintain the unity, not going to happen. But if you can trust Christ who's working in your brothers and sisters and in you to do that and rest in that instead of what little annoying thing they did or how they irritated you or how you irritate them. If you rest in him and look to the chief shepherd at all times and not get distracted by the wolves and the different things going on outside the flock, then you will maintain the unity and the bond of peace. It will happen. Guaranteed. Lastly, he says, see that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That actually means, when he says, see that no one repays anyone for evil, he's saying be vigilant and on the lookout for that. And, and you have to think about this context. He says, be, on, be vigilant and on the lookout for anyone who's repaying evil for evil. That means if somebody is doing evil back to the evil that they first received, be on the lookout for that. So we're supposed to make sure if... You can go to some extreme circumstances, but if evil is done to you, and we can go to some small circumstances, if somebody slights you or disregards you or forgets about you in some way, and then you turn right around to do the same thing to repay them, Paul says, look out for that. That's not the spirit that we want in and of ourselves. We want a forgiving spirit. Otherwise, we can't pray the Lord's Prayer with him. Because we haven't forgiven our debtors as he's forgiven us. So I love that that's such a strong word there. He's calling for patience with morally weak and idleness and all that stuff. And he's calling for vigilance for evil done in the context of evil. The greatest evil ever done was done to Jesus. Amen. How did he repay that? In the context of his humanity on the cross, did Jesus repay them right then and there in the context of that evil? No, he prayed for them. He, he, he was patient with them. And he alone is the one uh, whom vengeance belongs to. He will repay evil as is right for a righteous God to do. 
He'll take care of all that, but our instruction is to not do evil. To not take vengeance in that way, but to make sure all of us are pursuing good. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 7, Paul says, To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? If one of your brothers and sisters inside the church, especially, not only, but especially, uh, does something so evil to you, even to bring up a lawsuit against you, he says, why not rather be, be wronged? Why not rather be defrauded and stolen from? Jesus references this early on in regards to those who sin against you. Uh, you know, somebody slaps you on the cheek, turn to the other one. Somebody asks you for your cloak, give them also your sandals. What, what do we, why do we think that we have to get people back? Are we not comfortable enough in the fact that God can reign supreme over every individual life to repay it as he deemed necessary? Is he not the only righteous judge that exists in all the universe? Why do we think we can do it? Why do we think we need to? You, you proclaim something in your desire to do good even to those who do evil. Seek to do good to one another and to everyone. That means to pursue it, to be actively engaged in finding, giving, or being about someone else's good. Not passively, but actively. <clears throat> Romans twelve seventeen: repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Titus 3, 1 through 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And, and here's the kicker uh, as he's writing to Titus. It's a, it's a reminder. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. <laughs> it's so contrary to a world who is driven by the forces of evil to hate each other for the smallest, most insignificant things and for even the biggest things that for us to find unity in the midst of diversity, and I'm not talking about just skin color, we're all from diverse backgrounds and personalities and, uh, and, and, and proclivities. Have, have unity in the midst of sinners? We just celebrated a wedding yesterday. And, and one of the most important things about weddings, especially as you're counseling people who are getting married, is like, look, you love each other for what you can give one another. And you're going to learn to love one another because you've committed to it. Because you're putting two sinners together. And to have complete unity there is, is absurd to our nature as sinners. 
So when there is a, a unity that is contrary to what's seen in the world, what do you have? You have a display of the gospel. Because only Christ has perfect unity in and of himself in the Godhead. And when that is communicated through sinful humans, when, when the relationships that have been marred by sin and divided by sin find this otherworldly supernatural unity where the other person is self-sacrificing at all times, even though that other person has sinned against them numerous times and will keep doing it. When that's a relationship that's characterized by those things, you have a display of the gospel that is seen in no other place in the world. That's why I tell people marriage is the metaphor. It's not the thing. It's for seeing the gospel, the love of Christ for his church, period. So then, Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We're going to love the world. We're going to feed the hungry, despite how they became hungry, their sin or someone else's. We're going to clothe the naked. We're going to house the orphans. We're going to help the widows. We're going to do these things by reaching out and loving the world. But, but think about what he's saying at the end of Galatians and what he's saying in this letter. He's making sure to, to also distinguish that, that you have to, you must especially be good to the household of faith. Our relationship, one another, our seeking of each other's good, our having this mind amongst ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus, who did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the, the form of a servant and becoming obedient even to the point of death, death on a cross. If that's our mind, then we are a living, breathing example of Christ's love in this world. And I would ask you, church, do you want to do that together? Do you want to approach the throne on the last day knowing that you were part of his body which made known his glory in this world? Or are you going to be in tears before his throne because of how you hated your brother and sister for some insignificant detail that was very, very temporary? That's what I'm laboring for. That's what me and several other brothers and sisters are praying for consistently is that our love would be first directed to our Lord and secondly, directed to each other, and then let it overflow from there. So respond to your Lord now from his word, and then we'll stand and sing.